everybody, welcome to Making the Game, Concept to Kickstarter, Episode 2. In this episode, we will discuss where to begin on this journey of going from gamer to game designer. And in order to tell that story, I'm going to share where we began. For us, this began with the basic desire to make a game, obviously. But beyond that, the specific idea came during a session of Pathfinder we were playing way back in 2013. It was uh, the staff and some of the customers at our store, which for those of you who are new to me and Frontline Gaming, we do have a, a physical store. So we were playing this super fun game of Pathfinder. And as an aside, I included a link to the blog that we kept about our game. Now, just as a fair warning, this was over 10 years ago. Uh, we weren't as good at web design or any of that sort of stuff back then. Also, our sense of humor was less sophisticated, I will say, than it is now. Obviously, we were a lot younger back then, but it's still a lot of fun to go and read it. Although, spoiler alert, I didn't finish it. Business picked up and I got too busy to finish it. So it does end on a bit of a cliffhanger for those of you who actually go and check it out. But nevertheless, it is still a lot of fun to read it. You can find that link in the notes over at bloodthrone.org or uh, on the Frontline Gaming post, I will include the, the link there as well. So at any rate, we were playing this game of Pathfinder, we we're having a ton of fun. And one of the things that made this unique is that all of us are also miniatures gamers. We're also passionate miniatures gamers. Our two favorite tabletop gaming genres are RPGs and tabletop miniatures games like Warhammer 40,000, Age of Sigmar, uh, Marvel Crisis Protocol is a new one that I really love. I think they did a, a tremendous job with that. So those two types of tabletop games form sort of the core background of the games we loved in addition to adventure board games like Descent. That was really popular back then or games, more current ones like Gloomhaven. And that's when the idea hit us. Wouldn't it be cool if you could design a party of characters that are similar to the kind of characters you make in games like D&D or Pathfinder and then play them on more of a skirmish scale with the aesthetics of games like Warhammer where you have three-dimensional terrain and other fun elements such as that. So initially we tried to make Pathfinder, which was the game we played at the time, and anyone who's played Pathfinder, which was basically a, a derivation of D&D 3.5 edition, knows that it was not in any way balanced wasn't balanced for PvE, let alone PvP. So then when we tried to do this sort of arena battle where we each made a group of characters, it was just a complete mess. It was a lot of fun, but it was just so wonky and unbalanced that it didn't work. The idea kind of fizzled out, but it was a really, really good exercise because we spent quite a bit of time just trying to hammer out the details, like what worked, what didn't work. And it was a really good starting point, even though it felt like a failure at the time. However, I just couldn't get the idea out of my head. It just seemed like such a cool and obviously fun concept to be able to create a team of fantasy heroes and then play them in custom PvE or PvP scenarios. Now, I'm also a huge fan of computer role-playing games like Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, the Divinity series, Final Fantasy Tactics, Fire Emblem, XCOM, Fallout Tactics, you name it. Anything that sort of combines strategy gaming with role-playing game, gaming elements, I've always been a massive fan of. And in that span of time, we had sort of a renaissance of that genre and tons of cool games were coming out. And I was having so much fun 
playing them, and then again, making teams of custom heroes. It was just a blast to then go and then fight against the, the various monsters. Now, also during this period of time, Kickstarter sort of bloomed, and we were seeing lots of new products coming to the market, and we actually launched our first product in conjunction with a, a partner company via Kickstarter in the early days, and we got a taste of how exciting it is to have a Kickstarter campaign that's successful, to see the enthusiasm, and just really, it's just a really fun, cool way to bring a new product to the marketplace. Our Kickstarter project in today's terms, would be considered a very modest success. But in the early days, it was pretty exciting. Then we started to see the absolutely amazing successes of products like Kingdom Death Monster, and then, you know, the juggernaut that was Gloomhaven, and of course, in my opinion, the creme de la creme of the crowdfunding, which is Awaken Realms. And they've gone on to do amazing things, and we'll talk about them later. But regardless, it was very inspiring to see these companies come out of nowhere and then launch these really amazing, intricate games with exciting rules, cool miniatures, and to have also obviously the tremendous success that they did in financial terms. And it really it was an inspiration to say like, yeah, okay, I think, you know, this is possible, this is doable. So at that point in time, I started setting aside time after work and on the weekends to go back to that idea that I just couldn't shake about a tactical RPG on the tabletop where you have control of not just one hero, which is typically the way these kind of games go, but a team of heroes, similar to what you have in a video game like XCOM, where you have a team of XCOM um, operatives and you have to kind of control all of them, you know, similar to a game like Final Fantasy Tactics. And they can level up and they have all those RPG elements. And then you're going in and fighting these sort of set piece battles against monsters with objectives and it's challenging and, and very engaging. Once I started writing down the ideas in a serious manner, it just absolutely poured out of me. My first writing session was like six hours. And then the next few after that were very, very long as the ideas just came out of me. And it was really fun. It was like a joyous process to give myself permission to take it seriously and really try to get it all down on paper. Now, of course, in the beginning, the ideas were all over the place. It was mostly notes, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of ideas on math and dice mechanics and things of this nature. And it was pretty incoherent, but it was a start. Fortunately, I've had the wonderful experience to help work on designing games like Warhammer 40,000, as a playtester with Games Workshop, I was very involved with the creation of and testing of 8th edition. And I also had a ton of experience writing rules that, that players used in the real world through running tournaments, which for those of you who are unfamiliar with us, we run lots of tabletop gaming tournaments all around the United States. The biggest one, the Las Vegas Open, has 5,000 attendees. That's coming up on January 18th, and coincidentally, that's where we're going to debut Blood Throne, although obviously the game won't be completely done, but we will have demos going. So feel free to come by and check it out. Also, obviously, having ran the international tournament circuit or the ITC, we were heavily involved with writing rules that people used. And the reason I bring this up is that it gave me a lot of personal firsthand experience seeing how people actually interpret and use written material and rules in reality. So if you have the opportunity to be involved in a game in that fashion, I highly recommend it. And you'd be surprised how low the barrier to entry is for most games, especially smaller games. Now, 
If you go and try to be a playtester for Riot Games and League of Legends, you might have a more difficult journey getting there because the game is so big. But with a lot of the smaller games, the independent games, they're dying to have people act as playtesters. And that's a wonderful opportunity to kind of see what it's like to be able to jump in and actually read the rules in their nascent stage, give feedback, and learn a lot about the process. Plus you'll make connections along the way. And that invaluable experience of seeing how players actually use the words that you wrote as rules in reality, I really can't emphasize enough how important that is because so frequently something that makes sense to you that you understand with full context, somebody that's coming into it without that context or sometimes with the intention of misinterpreting it will play it in a way that is in some cases the opposite of what you expected. So you really wanna try and cut your teeth on that if at all possible, even with just your own play group where you can go, hey everybody, uh, if you're willing to bear with me on this, I'm gonna write some rules out and I just wanna watch you all read them, talk to each other about what it means and then play them in reality. And it can be for a game that you already play, like a house rule. And as you repeat that process, you'll get better and better and better at writing rules. Now, the other side of that is being a competent writer. So you really want to understand how to write clearly, what language to use. And there's some really simple tools that you can use. One of the best ones, it's a really, really short book. It's called The Elements of Style. It's a classic. It's, it's an old book, but it's like in, in every writer's handbook. And you want to take the time to understand how to use language in a way that is clear and concise with a minimal amount of unnecessary language. We'll go further into writing rules in a future podcast, but that's just some really quick tips that you can do today to get yourself in a position to do the best job possible. To circle back around to the original topic though, that's a great place to start. Ask yourself, wouldn't it be cool if dot dot dot? What kind of game would you want to play? Just as I had this desire that I really couldn't turn off to have a tactical RPG experience on the tabletop, ask yourself that question. Wouldn't it be cool if we had a game like Magic the Gathering, but it was all about space kittens or whatever? Obviously I'm being silly, but ask yourself that question and write down answers to it and really explore the idea. And whichever one speaks to you, that's the idea you want to run with. We'll talk later about sort of molding your game to fit the market, to, to, to fit demands in the market. But my honest feeling is that if you're chasing trends, it may work, but you're not really, you're, the odds of making something truly amazing, of making a Gloomhaven are a lot lower if you're chasing that dragon. If you're chasing your passion, if you're making the game that you really love, that you really believe in, you're more likely to have a big success and to feel more fulfilled creatively. So we'll talk more about that topic and many others, but I wanted to now turn to answering some of the questions we got on social media about our upcoming game, Bloodthrone. Ramon O asked the question, can Bloodthrone be played solo? And Ramon, the answer is yes, it can. It's a game for one to seven players. And let me explain what I mean by a game for one to seven players. You have a roster of 12 heroes. However, when you go on a mission, you can pick six. As I explained in the last podcast, they're not always available. They can be injured. They might have to take a break. Think about XCOM, a similar mechanic. So when you're playing, up to six players can play one hero each. 
or one player could play all six, or you could have two to three players that each take two to three heroes. Now the monsters run on an AI system, but a human being still has to move them around and read the AI and that sort of thing. So what you could do to have the seventh player is to have one player just play all the monsters, which is a lot of fun in playtesting. I did that all the time. Another listener asked, how many miniatures are there? So there are 14 hero miniatures. We'll call it 14 and a half. There's 12 heroes and two pets or summons, and we'll really dig into all the fun, crunchy rules mechanics later. And then we have a little mini guy who's a familiar, which a wizard can use, um, and we'll explain that in more depth later, but they're a lot of fun. There are also 17 different types of monsters. Some of them come in groups of two or three for the weaker monsters, giving us a total of 28 monster miniatures. So it is absolutely loaded with miniatures. And another thing to note, which is unique for Blood Throne, is that some of the monster miniatures are huge. Belphegor, for example, is absolutely gigantic. Like you have to see the pictures to understand. And that's not normal in it in a venture board game because they take up so much space and they're very expensive to make. Head on over to bloodthrone.org to see a picture of all of the monsters to get a sense for the detail and the scale. Joshua K asks, is it possible to play Blood Throne as a type of tabletop role-playing game or just to get a supplement that has all the rules races classes monsters and stats and the answer is yes in the kickstarter we will have a supplement and expansion that is called the blood throne handbook in it we really dive deep into the lore and we give the full rules for pvp character creation monster creation and ideas for running your own custom adventures and scenarios the supplement also comes with an additional 12 hero models plus their summons and what these do is they give you the other six classes and characters that you need to fully flesh out the two factions that we're leading out the gates with for the game. To specify that point, in the core box, you have 12 heroes, and they come from every different nation of the world, or almost every nation, I should say, that are still standing after the Throne Wars. And we'll explain what the Throne Wars are in future episodes as we talk about the lore. But in essence, these heroes in the starter box normally would not work together, but they will work broadly with one of the two factions they are associated with called the Iconoclasts and the Adherents to Zenith. So in the starter box, you can play a sort of mini PvP, we call it uh, skirmish mode, where you take the 12 heroes from the starter box, and if you choose to, you can play a 6v6 right out of the box. Now to play the full PvP, or to play a full PvE campaign, your own custom campaign, with one of the two general factions, you need the full 12 heroes to do so. And that's where the expansion comes in. Those give you the other six heroes per each faction for you to have the fully fleshed out Adherence to Zenith and Iconoclasts, respectively. Now, if you don't want to buy the expansion, you can just play with the characters in the box. They have their own special faction called the last accord and if you were to go to an organized play event you could just bring the the models out of the box and you're good to go the only limitation is those heroes are not customizable meaning if you're going to play ajax you're going to get ajax if you're going to play with gray wolf the ranger you're getting gray wolf the ranger it makes it really easy and we did that on purpose 
so that, for example, if you were going to come to the LVO, our big convention, and you wanted to dip your toe into organized play, which we have some amazing things planned for that, you don't need anything more than what comes in the starter box. However, if you want more variety and if you want to fully explore the adherence to Zenith or Iconoclast faction for customization, hero customization, for PvP, for PvE, then you want to get that expansion so that you have access to all the rules and all the models that you need. So what are the two factions you might be asking yourself? So obviously the heroes of the last accord, which are in the starter box, straightforward. You've already seen those non-customizable, but they're really good. They do the job and they can provide a lot of fun and unique play opportunities. So the two factions, the Iconoclasts and the Adherence to Zenith, broadly speaking, are what we call super factions. So they're collections of groups, nations, there's lots of different organizational structures in the game, but they're large groups that will work with each other under a common ideological choice. There's like a dividing line between the two of them, which is what separates them. The Iconoclasts will use what we in the game call Devathae for their own purposes. Now, we'll explain that in a bit. And the adherents to Zenith refuse to use Devathae on moral grounds. So what is Devathae? I hear you asking yourself. Devathae in our world is basically the essence of sentient beings. Think of it as the soul. And it's extracted from these beings against their will through their blood. Really cool movie to watch to get kind of an idea of. There's an animated film called Spine of the Night. Now, just to throw it out there, it's very adult. Um, not in a, a sexual sense, but it's very violent. It's very weird and, and trippy. But it gives you kind of a cool idea of the, the concept in broad strokes. The downside of Devathe, beyond the fact that obviously it, it costs the life of the kith that it comes from. Kith is a term we, term we use in the game to describe any sentient race, such as elves, humans, dwarves, etc. The downside being that those that use it, it inevitably warps their body and their mind, and it can warp their spirit as well. Those that cannot control it will be twisted into the worst representation of their inner self. So a lot of the monsters in our game were once people that used Devathae, were unable to control it, and then they became beasts, brutes, monsters, creatures of nightmare. The upside of using it is that it gives you enhanced power and it extends your lifespan. It also allows for marvelous feats of engineering, such as one of the factions in the game, the Seaborn, which the rogue Downin comes from. It allows them to do things like make their pirate ships sail through the air. They, they become airships like Final Fantasy. Another example is the Delgri, which are a group of barbaric tribes from the north, which the shaman hero Karbjornsson comes from. It allows them to travel through the dreamscape of Notgar. So in video game terms, it would be like fast travel, which allows these relatively low tech faction to be a threat pretty much anywhere in the world that they can open up a portal through the dreamscape too. So the temptation to use Devathe is very high and some of the factions use it out of a sense of necessity. During the Throne Wars, they were hit so hard that they're on the verge of being wiped out. So some of the factions are using this distasteful resource because they have no other choice. Some are using it because they want to, because they, they gain an advantage in doing so. But the important thing to note is that the Iconoclasts aren't necessarily bad guys. Some of them definitely are, but not all of them are. Some of them are forced into doing this due to circumstances. And the adherents to Zenith simply refuse to use it no matter what. And they have other advantages which we'll explore as we go through the game. But as you can probably tell, we have a fully fleshed out world behind this game. And we have tons of factions planned out that will have their own unique classes, their own aesthetic, 
and an exploration of certain topics that we think make them really unique and fun. Thank you for tuning in to Making the Game Episode 2. I hope you found it informative. I hope it made you excited to explore your own ideas and to consider supporting our Kickstarter for Blood Throne, which is coming out on January 18th. In just two weeks, I am getting pretty nervous over here, but also very excited. Please continue to ask questions. Let me know what you like and don't like about the podcast and also topics that you would like to hear about in future episodes so that you can learn more about going on this adventure yourself potentially or just to satisfy your curiosity on the topic and also to learn more about with our game. Thank you so much and we will talk to you all next week.